0: Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Associate Professor at Australian Catholic University, Stuart Carmack. Thanks for tuning episode 293 of the Pacing Performance Podcast. So absolutely delighted to get Stu on for this episode today. He's been on the list for a long time and definitely one who I've stalked probably more than I should have done over the last three or four years. But delighted to get him on finally. Um, so he's done some amazing work over the last 20-25 years in the industry, more recently at ACU. So if you haven't checked out his research, definitely do. Um, But this episode complements Matt Varley's episode from a couple of weeks ago really, really well. We discuss sports tech and Stu's journey through sports tech. Then we discuss GPS, uh, the rise of inertial sensors, uh, internal validation, how it's done, um, why it's so important to do, which is the the link to, to Matt's episode. Then we discuss the integration of sports science and strength and conditioning, which is a really interesting topic. Then we finally um, have a little chat around load and the fatigue relationship, which again is a huge part of of Stu's uh, current research and previous research. Um, So it's really good good to get his take on that topic so it's a great episode if you're into your load monitoring this is definitely one for you Um, but if you haven't checked out matt Valley's episode um, whether you do this one before matt's or matt's before this i do really think they complement each other really nicely so i hope you enjoyed the chat with Stu. would love your feedback and i will chat to you soon This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Kitman Labs. So Kitman Labs partners with leading sports teams to help them consistently achieve the highest levels of performance by increasing the impact of their data. So over 200 teams across the globe rely on Kitman Labs performance intelligence platform to quantify the cost of performance and injury and receive the right insights at the right time. Through unique outcome-driven analytics and the most advanced athlete management system, teams can align their organizations around a shared view of what it takes to drive performance and health and move at the speed of sport to adjust and continuously improve. If you want to know more about Kitman Labs, head over to www.win.kitmanlabs.com forward slash impact. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by I measure you. So used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field AMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports so as you have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident which includes ultra high G capabilities to quantify high impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer battery life to collect data all day, real time feedback to aid immediate interventions and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. I measure you, now part of Vicon, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, US Department of Defence and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about iMeasureU, head over to their website imeasureu.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at imeasureu. So without further ado, over to the episode with Stu Carmack. Thanks for tuning into the Pace Performance Podcast. So, this morning or this evening, I'm delighted to welcome Stu Cormac. So, welcome to the podcast, mate. Good morning, Rob. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on. So, the two things that I fear the most with this podcast is well, there's three actually. I, I, I lied hmm. earlier. One is getting the surname wrong. But in this instance, I'm pretty sure I can handle Cormac. the second one, I... yeah. The second one is job title. So, I always dodge that because I don't know. Yeah, that can always cause of an issue and the yeah. third one is time time zones and that's where i failed a few weeks ago so apologies <laughs> for that <laughs> this should have been probably out by now but um yeah my bad on that one um, no, but not in, yeah thanks mate um thanks for bearing with me so anyone that doesn't know who you are you just want to give us a bit of a background on yourself uh what you're doing at acu what you've done previously and then we'll jump off from there
1: yeah, sure. Um, look, I'm sure there's a lot of people who, who don't uh, know me or, or anything about me, but um, yeah, I guess my current role is uh, Associate Professor in the School of Behavioural and Health Science at ACU. Um, my role there is um, across a couple of areas. I'm heavily involved in our online Master of High Performance Sport, which a few people um, know about, and uh, also a whole lot of applied research. But in addition to that, uh, part of my work is um, to provide consultancy services to, to different programs that um, kind of engage ACU and I, I do the work on behalf of ACU to support those programs. Um, for example, Australian Institute of Sport, Combat Sports Centre. Uh, I've just recently finished a role with uh, the International Cricket Council and have had um, some consultancy work with um uh, an AFL football club as part of my ACU role but been there now for oh I think it's I think it's eight years so moving fairly quickly but you know of course prior to that a long time in high performance sport
0: Excellent what did you do before ACU? What, what, was, the previous, what was the job previous Ooh, to that?
1: Yeah gee <laughs> sadly people will be able to tell by the the greatest of my beard that I've been around <laughs> a while um <laughs> And so because of that, there's, there's a few jobs um, yeah. prior to ACU. Um, you know, I probably started out like like most people and, um, you know, did some time volunteering in sport. And then my first sort of um, major gig in, in sport um, was I worked for an AFL team um, when it was all part-time back in Melbourne. Um, and I was actually teaching uh, physical education at the time um, back in the day before These roles were full-time. So, again, the age is uh, sort of coming out. Um, So I was sort of teaching to support my coaching habit, for want of a better um, analogy. Uh, And then um, after, so that was started that in, believe it or not, 1994. uh, And then after that, I I went and worked at the AIS in Canberra uh, and was lucky enough to be there in the four-year cycle uh, of the lead up to the Sydney Olympic Games, so wow. yeah, it was just a, a great experience that that had a huge impact on um, sort of forming my approach to high performance sport. Um, after that, went to uh, the West Coast Eagles football club in Perth, um, and lucky enough to spend eight years there, where we were pretty successful. Um, then moved uh, back to my hometown of Melbourne to work with um, another. AFL club, uh, just to be closer to family, etc. And then, um, yeah, when that all came to an end, as as they tend to at some point in high-performance sport, I uh, I made the move to, to ACU. So I crossed that sort of boundary from being a high-performance practitioner with an interest in, in the applied research to sort of now shifting the balance, you know, a bit more towards the applied research but still the, the huge interest in the a high-performance sport at the coalface whenever the opportunity arises. Mm-hmm.
0: So it was Glenn Stewart at West Coast Eagles. Yeah. So okay. I he's still uh... Yeah.
1: In yeah. fact, we just uh, um, were in contact a couple of days ago, um, so still very close friends um, with Glenn. We shared an office for eight years, so really good mates and, a, and yeah, just a, a class operator.
0: Mm-hmm when you do speak to them people as you clearly do and you, they have the background and been in that environment for what 25 20, 25 yeah, yeah, yeah. years yep. just to have that longevity in that stressful environment in that unstable environment fair play like it's a it's a long old stint oh and Very particularly
1: look it is and particularly in Glenn's example you played at the one club yes it's not, it's not even yes. multiple clubs for that of time you know I've, I, I think 27 years of high performance sport I've been involved now but I certainly haven't been in the one environment that long so yeah look uh, as we all know it can it can chew you up and spit you out pretty quickly so to survive for that long is is very
0: impressive. Yeah absolutely and I know you mentioned your your agent talking about physical education teacher but there's been quite a few that have been on uh, who have have come through that kind of background I know you've you've transition back into that because you, you're doing your, your stuff at the university now but how much how much of a grounding good grounding did that physical education background give you moving forward into high performance sport and then obviously back into your current role
1: massive uh, i i can't i couldn't um uh overstate how important that was, I was talking to somebody the other day, we, we walked in, I remember, to day one of our um, degree program and it was quite a selective degree. There was quite a few hurdles to, to actually get in. And I remember day one we walked in, they divided us into groups and then they gave us a skill that we had to go and teach someone. Day one, we didn't know anybody's name, we didn't know anything. Go and teach this.
0: Well, I don't know how to do that.
1: Well, <laughs> they knew we didn't know how to do it, but that wasn't the point. Um, and so you learnt very very quickly, um, you know how to develop the skills to organise a group, you know, ensure that the teaching points were appropriate. Some of those, some of those basic uh, things that are important uh, to teachers, that then transferred to coaching high performance athletes. Um, yeah, it, it was a huge factor in allowing me to to do that. I think maybe a little more successfully early on than I, than I otherwise
0: would have mm-hmm. I know this isn't on the on the list of discussion points but I think given the situation it'd be quite nice to have a little chat about the online program that you guys run at ACU do you think that yeah. do you think that will I know it's already popular but do you think that'll allow it become more popular given our the times that we're living in and obviously the at the back end of this?
1: Yeah, it's a good question, Rob. Um, look, look, it is relatively popular, and I must say, there's some some other really good programs around that you know offer um, education um, around high performance sport in in similar or, or, or you know sometimes slightly different um, ways. But I think it's going to have a big impact on the way we deliver um, tertiary education. I think it's forced people to be innovative with the way they deliver um, people are very quickly upskilling in how to deliver content online um, and as a result of that i think we'll see um, lots more people understand that that's a really viable option for them uh, both from universities delivering and people actually obtaining their education that way so you know, i think it's i think it's going to hasten the uh, the advance towards online education
0: yeah absolutely agree. so one thing that i'm i'm really interested in and i know you are is, is the sports technology side of it and um, we're yeah. going to get into a bit of a discussion about gps and all these kind of goods all the good stuff but where, where did you get interested in in sports tech and why did i suppose your research kind of go down that way was it influenced from obviously your practical days and then yeah, yeah where, where did that come from
1: yeah look um for me every bit of research I've ever done has been driven by a practical interest so even the stuff that we do that might be considered perhaps a little more mechanistic for me that's that's of interest because you can then make the leaps or the steps towards the practical implication so that's always been the driver but the tech stuff started and and if um and I must uh Bring up Glenn Stewart again. We started with this in, well, it'd be two thousand or two thousand and one, and I can remember distinctly being out in the middle of uh, the Subiaco Over, which was the home ground of um, the West Coast Eagles in Perth, Australia, and Glenn was up in the grandstand, and he had a little tablet, so um, that was designed to to track with an electronic pen the movement pattern of the, you know, the players on the ground and we were trialling that and we went to the point ultimately where we had a handful of them and we had a bunch of students that were uh, collecting game day activity profile uh, with that method.
0: So each one, each student had a player to watch? Oh, Yeah. Wowzer. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. So it was labour intensive but, you know, we went out there um we measured the distance, and then um, we tracked the distance. So we did our own little internal validation and, and calibration of the tech uh, to understand the, the data that it was that was giving us. Um, now we soon moved as soon as we could um, to GPS, and and we bought. I remember we bought one unit of uh, one Hertz one GPS, hertz. one yeah. Hertz, and again we went out and we we played with it and. We had some runs through Perth that we went on regularly, and I remember I threw it on my back the first day, and right off we go. See what it see what it tells us, and we developed um, you know our interest in that. And uh, at the time, the AFL then brought in a rule that you could have a maximum of ten units um, because they were worried about inequity across the competition. Um, so as a club, we we pushed that. We we got the the, the I think we had eight or ten. And um, yeah, got the data off players at training and matches, and and that was that was probably the start of it from a tracking perspective. But at the time I was at West Coast, um, I'd um, just around that time started thinking about further study, and then as the a couple of years went past, I um, I. Um, connected with um, Professor Rob Newton from Edith Cowan University and Professor Mike McGuigan, who's now at Auckland University of Technology. Um, they supervised my PhD and, and that's where my interest came in with regards to force plates, linear position transducers, um, etc. So um, th- that, was, that was the first real concrete use of it. When I was at the AIS, I did a, a, a research master's and uh, I used the force plate that was embedded in the floor in the physiology lab, and you had to go back through individual lines of code and output to find the point to identify the phase of the jump or the peak or or whatever. So that that's kind of where it
0: all where it all kicked off. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm right in thinking that you were probably the first guys to be exposed to GPS on the back of the Olympics.
1: Yeah, so. Timing's everything and, geez, I've been so lucky. Um, When I was at the AIS uh, between um, 97 and 2000, that was the period when there was uh, a microtechnology grant between um, the Australian government's sort of scientific arm, which is called the Commonwealth Scientific Industrial Research Organisation, and there was a grant and a link between the AIS um, and the CSIRO to develop microtechnology. And that product... Was the forerunner
0: of what we now know as catapult. Mm-hmm. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So when it when it was coming out and it was the it was the one hertz unit. Obviously, we look at back like we look back now, like we do with I don't know the old iPhone and going back yeah, to yeah. like black and white. Tea. But did you think? Did you realise and and I suppose contemplate at the time that this was gonna really kick on the way it has done. We, did you knew it was the infancy of something that was going to be really influential in how what sports scientists do?
1: Yeah, it's it's, it's interesting to think back. Um, at the time, I can remember just being fascinated by what this could tell us, and I remember you know having discussions, thinking, "Wow, if we can really understand the external load of the athlete, the activity profile, what a huge advantage that is for." for designing training and, and monitoring, um, you know, how athletes are, are coping. So I was really excited and, you know, quickly things were developing um, with the software and, you know, you knew it was going to happen fast. But I'd have to be honest, I, I don't think I perceived at the time the, the huge role it would play in um you know in world sport
0: mm-hmm. so fast forward to where we are now where, where do you where do you think we are now in terms of using gps and, and player tracking
1: um well this might be a bit controversial in, in, <laughs> in some cases i think the tail started to wag the dog so what I mean by that is I think I think sometimes we've got so excited by by what this technology tells us that we've forgotten that it's for the purpose of maximizing performance and that it's not a performance criteria in itself. And so we've got caught up in all these thousands variations of metrics and and what have you but they're not all that useful some of them can tell you some really interesting stuff that's really valuable but some of the numbers a bit black box historically um and even if they're really accurate um in reflecting what they purport to measure that's maybe not that important to, to the outcome, to, to what the athlete uh, does or achieves. But having said that, I'm, I'm starting to feel a shift back. I, I reckon we went, we accelerated up to the point where we just collected everything and we thought it was all important and now we're starting to reassess and say, oh, hang on a minute, how are we actually using this technology to drive our practice or to inform our coaching decisions um, rather than, yeah, as I say, for a little while there, I think it, it it got to the point where it was driving the programs rather than, you know, helping us make good decisions.
0: Do you think that point, do you think there was a, a, t- a certain turning point or do you think it's just a natural progression of, of a trend, I guess? Or do you think that, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, it's, it, it, was, it was probably a, a natural progression. Um, but I think one of the things um, that helped there is that as the, for want of a better word, scrutiny on, on devices and technology increased, that, that's resulted in, in, a, in a little bit more in-depth analysis of, okay, well, what does that mean? What is it telling us? How is it helping us? And, and I say that from both a, a research perspective and, you know, at the coalface application perspective. So we've become a little bit more clever in in how we use it. So it's probably a, a natural evolution, but, but I do believe that, you know, the the, the sports science um, research process has actually helped that.
0: hmm so you mentioned about the different the thousand different metrics and people actually collecting everything, and then now we're at a point of actually trying to maybe reduce that and actually pick out the ones that are useful. How do we go through that process? How do how do practitioners go through that process of actually collecting what is meaningful to them?
1: Um, yeah, look, it's it, it's not easy, and again, I think this is where in some ways some of the some of the applied research has been really helpful because it's it's perhaps utilized uh, you know some statistical approaches um you know some larger data sets um some some work that's able to be really um objective uh and help us decide well yeah like instinctively this variable sounds like it would be important but actually when we analyze it it doesn't really mean much at all so i think I think that's that's probably the way it's it's to have some kind of you know objective process to examine the interactions between you know what you can measure um and decide whether that's actually important you know does it impact the individual athlete's performance the game outcome does it have a um you know a role to play in you know the fatigue response that we might see post-performance, and I think people are starting to understand that if well if it just happens but it's sort of inconsequential, we can probably push it uh, to the side.
0: And I, re- I refer back to the UKSCA conference presentations quite a bit because quite a few of the people I've on and I've had on of of. Uh, of- have presented the UKCA and I've rewatched their presentations uh, prior, yeah. to, prior to jumping on. And just thinking back to yours, you presented some work. I think it was around, was it around RSI, potentially, back in 2000 and – no, Yeah. Jump, no, jump, to... jump
1: data? Yeah, flight time and contraction time, which was That's um, it. That's the one. from my PhD research,
0: yeah. Yeah, yeah. so so you, you – how you presented that and what you presented was exactly that going through the process of deciphering what was I suppose what was useful and what wasn't in terms of the in in terms of that exact process from a a practitioner point of view and we've got it on the list of of, I suppose internal validation it comes back to what you were doing on the on the tablets um, back in the early 2000s yeah obviously things have, have, have slightly moved on since then but I guess that the process is still very similar in terms of how we actually get to know what we should be collecting and what what is actually meaningful so from a practitioner point of view on i know it's friday today but on monday if the world was a normal state how can people go through that process to to understand what they're collecting is what they think they are and Mm. what is useful to them
1: yeah well look it's it's one of those things that it kind of underpins in in my mind um you know any of the decisions about the usability of the technology and the variables that come out of it. Uh, So I think there's there's a couple of steps. The the first one, you know, is really the question around validity. So is the technology and the variable measuring what um, it it purports to measure? And I've got to say that with the increased scrutiny of things like microtechnology for measuring, um, you know, external load, speed, distance, accelerometer load uh, and similar variables, I think we can actually be more and more confident that those um, variables actually represent what the companies say they represent because, you know, back in the day, the company could say, well, this is five metres a second and you go, "Mm, okay. Must be. (laughs) Must be. (laughs) But now they don't do that because they know full well somebody's going to grab that tech and run a reliability and validity study on it straight away. So, you know, I'm much more confident now um, about um, the the validity and reliability of the technology. Having said that, I don't think any of us should just take it for granted. Uh, we shouldn't just accept, "I oh, that's the number. So, you know, some simple things like, you know, saying, well, if I want to buy the units, I want to trial them for a week and, and go out and, do a test, and when you've got a known distance and it's a bit different, you question why. You know, is that is that filtering? Is it is it something else? Um, you know, run a little um, reliability trial um, in your program, so you get people to to run the same um, course a, a number of times and, and see how consistent that that data is. It, it's not onerous, but I think it can give you some real confidence that that what, um, you know, you're investing probably a fairly large amount of money in is actually giving you um, what you expect. And I don't think you should have any qualms at all about um, comparing one brand of tech straight up against um, another brand, you know, put them both on your back and see whether you get the same number. And if not, I think you should quite rightly expect a a good explanation as to why that's the case from the company.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, for, from my experience in this in this world, on the other side of it, on the, the non-practitioner side of it, you'd be surprised how, how – well, I don't, I don't think you probably would be surprised, but people may be surprised how few people actually do that. And these companies will have double pouch vests, triple vouch yeah, vests, yeah. triple Absolutely. pouch vests um, to be able to do this kind of thing, but very rarely would people do it. Very rarely would people come to the end of their two-year contract, three-year contract, and actually consider anything else. It's just a given that it kind of almost a given that it rolls over, which is quite worrying.
1: Yeah, it is. But yeah, you know, it's funny. You can understand the pressure on people. Um, you know, from a whole lot of angles as yeah, to why 100%. that's the case. Like, yeah. Um, but but I just think you know we can probably take some steps that are relatively simple. The, the other thing is that. Um, because the scrutiny is so much higher, you know, you can probably find um, a pretty recent research paper which will give you the validity reliability numbers on, you know, technology X and variable one. It'll it'll be out there, you know. So that's the other part of it for me is is do a little bit of work and, and sift through the research to find out whether the question's um, you have about the tech have actually been answered in a you know a bit more of a uh, tighter
0: manner for one of a better term. Yeah, I mean just just on that and the, the time that it would take to do something really reasonably comprehensive in your own environment to to go through this, whether it's comparing X to Y to, to uh, Z in terms of the different companies, is it actually is it worth it given that the Data that can be generated can be different from environment to environment, from stadium to stadium. Is it worth going through that, or is it? Do you think it is okay to kind of look at look into the research, or do we need to do both?
1: Oh, look, I think in an ideal world you do both, um, but you know I'm realistic enough to to know that you know it, it's not with either. It's it's not in the realms of. Um, you know, time or even sometimes expertise but for people to do that with their own, um, in their own environment. So, so if they can't, I accept that completely. But what I would do is then make sure that I was really confident that um, I'd, I'd explored, um, you know, the published work that examined that technology um, to be comfortable that I was I was putting my money on something um, that was, in fact, valid and reliable. And then, of course, there's, there's a second step of, you know, just because the metric's valid and reliable, is it meaningful? And so you, you can buy the best tech in the world, but if you're not using it um, in a way that's, you know, appropriate to kind of inform your practice, well, you know, that's a, that's a, a step that um, you probably really have to get right.
0: Mm-hmm. Just going back to the early two thousands when you, or sorry, pre two thousand when you were using <laughs> the, the first the first one hertz unit, were they just GPS or was the any other inertial sensors in there? No.
1: Um, I'll be honest. If there was, we only looked at um, the GPS. Yeah. So we were looking at plain. Um, speed and distance, distance metrics, um, Yeah, so that would have been, yeah, early 2000s, very early 2000s, and um, that was the the forerunner of, or oh, the company was GP Sports, which yes. you'd be familiar with, yeah, so that was their first hertz unit, so quite interesting that, that Catapult and GP Sports both
0: came out of um, Australia. Mm-hmm. So just moving on to the, the present day and the, the, I suppose the rise of inertial sensors and companies, doing solely inertial sensors rather than combining that with the, the GPS device. Where, where can that potentially head, do you think, in terms of the, the future of, of inertial sensors and the use of that to actually become meaningful alongside the GPS metrics? Yeah, uh, look,
1: it, it's it's a fantastic point. Um, we've actually got a PhD project at the moment that's, that's looking at um, some of those issues. Um, we've already done quite a bit of work that's utilised um, the accelerometers um, as opposed to looking at, you know, GPS metrics such as speed and distance. Um, my, my personal view is that uh, I think that is where um, the greatest insight is going to lie um, because speed and distance are what I'd call relatively blunt metrics. Uh, they tend to be maintained relatively well. Um, they're fairly easy to measure. They're, they're, they're pretty accurate. But these inertial sensors, they have a high sample rate. They tend to be very reliable. And, you know, in theory, depending on placement um, and some, um, you know, mathematical calculations, there's a potential to calculate um, some much more discrete um representations of movement strategy Um, and to me that's um, where we're likely to find um, some real gems that uh, provide us with information about the status of our athlete and how they're performing.
0: I guess because of that depth and because of that like you say high sample rate that can potentially lead to been quite people have been quite daunted i guess with the yep. with the amount of data that them kind of devices are going are gonna to churn out how, how big a problem is that and i guess is it just the evolution of the cycle that people gravitate towards that as as people become more au fait with dealing with large sets of data
1: um yeah po- possibly um I, I think yeah like everything people will develop um you know more more um uh, user-friendly approaches to, to deal with that, um, technology companies will start to uh, automate more of the, the output that comes uh, from those sensors, which of course comes with the challenge of us understanding exactly, you know, how those automated outputs are derived. But, um, you know, you, you look at, at companies now, uh, the GPS companies all have some version of you know, player load or body load or, or similar, which is which is a derived metric um, from the accelerometer. And that's, that's easily understood um, by, by pretty much uh, everybody as a global representation of external load. Um, you know, you can drill down a little bit further and start to look at perhaps the individual vectors or, um, you know, the contribution um, uh, or the value of those um, variables at, you know, certain velocity bands, etc. Um, and then you've got um, companies like IMU who produce, um, you know, the IMU Step and the new Trident Sensors, um, which, you know, on an iPad is giving you a whole lot of information about um, some quite discrete stride parameters. So, um, yeah, I think like like all things it's going to evolve and become more and more user-friendly um, as it's
0: commercialised. Mm-hmm. Cool. So we're just gonna take a very, very quick break in the chat with Stu, hope you're enjoying part one. So over in part two, we discuss more on the sports science and strength and conditioning integration, and why that's so important, aligning philosophies and approaches uh, in them two areas. Then we finalise the episode with a little bit of a chat around load and fatigue relationship. Now, anyone that knows Stu and his research knows this forms a large part of it. So, a really interesting chat um, to get it from the horse's mouth towards the end. Um, whether we're talking about neuromuscular fatigue, um, counter movement jumps, submax tests, it's all in there towards the end. So, it's something to look forward to because it's a real, really interesting topic coming from Stu. But just before we do dive into part two, I wanna say a big thanks to Hawking Dynamics for sponsoring this episode today. So Hawking Dynamics offer the world's first wireless force plate testing system. So the Hawking Dynamics system is built around what coaches want so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab. So they're able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud-based system from anywhere in the world. head over to the website uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com which you can do and you can also schedule a demo and follow them on twitter at hawkingdynamics and also sponsoring this episode today is black box fitness so black box fitness are a sports performance equipment manufacturer based in belfast in northern ireland so if you are looking for a full gym fit out if you're lucky enough to be looking for a full gym fit out or just want to add Additional pieces to what you've already got, whether that be barbells, dumbbells, plates, maybe a new rack, some flooring, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera have a little look at what Black Box Fitness can offer. So you can head to their website, which is blkboxfitness.com, or for a more informal view of what they do, head over to their Instagram because they've got some really cool images of some of the recent projects that they've run in Australia, in the UK, in Europe, etc. So head over to their Instagram, which is at blkboxfitness, and they're the same on Twitter. So I want to bring the S&C coach into this conversation now. So we've kind of isolated the sports scientists. I know there's people out there doing dual roles, and I'm, I'm guessing that as this as this current situation progresses that we may come back to that where, sadly, people are um, let go and, and, and roles are combined. But just bringing the SNC coach back into this, and in terms of philosophies, how important is it for you for them to... Although they may be the same person moving forward, and maybe still be now, yeah. to, to align their philosophies in terms of how they go about things.
1: Well, it's critical, isn't it? I mean, I mean, for me again, I'm i showing my age here, but you know how I'm still not quite sure how they ended up completely separate things. Okay. Um, uh, because every S and C coach that I know that's worth their salt is basing their programming on scientific principles. Now, does that make them a sports scientist or an S&C coach? Well, I'm not fussed what you call them. <laughs> it doesn't matter what you call them. They're using scientific ideas. And, you know, funnily enough, they're conducting uh, N of one and small group research projects all the time. That's what they do. Um, but we've probably developed this this um, kind of side of our our profession, which is, and it's partly due to all this, this data that's available and the technology and the measurement and the testing, which now I think is absolutely um, valuable to enhancing performance. But you know, it's got to go hand in hand with you know data day decision making and and exercise prescription and coaching, or it's it's not. You know it exists, but it's kind of this parallel universe. Um, so I think that integration and the same page is is critically important. And and for me, I think you know we've gone from the days of of the all rounder to these very specialised niche roles. And I think, as you say, this current situation might send us back a bit more to the to the all rounder. Now, the all-rounder, there'll be some people who have more skills here or here, and but but they're across everything. But I think where it works best for me is is when you remember why you're there. You're there to enhance performance. Now, if if you call me now a sports scientist or an SNC coach, well, it probably depends what day of the week. So when I'm when I'm working with a a PhD student or or we're analysing some data, well, maybe I'm a sports scientist, but when I'm in the gym with my combat centre, uh, you know, judo athletes, and I'm loading the bar up on a squat, well, I'm an S&C coach. But, you know, I think think they've got to be one in the same. Uh, uh, But, you know, it's funny. I, I, I see people sort of sometimes talk about, oh, well, you know that that research doesn't apply. I'm not sure about that because it might not be your exact squad or, or demographic. But even the fact that you can read it and say, "Yeah, well, that's cool," but it doesn't apply to me. Well, by definition, it kind of does apply because you've just you've just removed <laughs> that from being a thing um, that you have to worry about. But equally, there could be a bit of research that's in a similar sport or or has a mechanistic component where you think, oh, gee, that's worth exploring in our environment. I, I might not copy and paste because no no good programs do that anyway. But I, I, I think, um, you know, quite often it applies more than, than people give it um, credit for. Um, but equally, you know, on, on the, the other side, we're going to be really careful sometimes in sports science that we just don't head off down a line, which is actually never going to drive practice. And I think that can actually happen relatively easily. We can get a little bit um, academic. So I, I think I think we as the day I've got. I must be sports scientists today. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think we've got to be careful that that we always look back and say okay well what's the end game here it's performance so if i'm doing mechanistic stuff what's the steps where this mechanistic work has a practical implication
0: do you think we're too quickly, as those that are working, I'm talking on behalf of those that are working in elite sport, to yeah. look at some research and go, "Ah, oh, no, don't apply to me." It's in collegiate athletes, so I'm not gonna, I'm gonna dismiss that completely. It's not with elite athletes, so not interested. Or should we be looking at that and thinking, "Okay, that that's not exactly my population, but it's got something about it that then I can actually transfer to mine and have a little look myself, my own mini research study." Yeah. Do you think we're quite yeah. guilty of that of just dismissing? Oh, we, we can be,
1: and i put myself in that category again, you know. I wouldn't say, oh, everybody else, but not me. I mean, I, I, I do that as well. And, and I think when you're in high-performance sport, you know, you've got, you, you just got to get it done. You, you're yeah. under pressure. You're worried about if, if we lose three more games these next weekends, I'm gone. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So, you know, we've got to put our realistic hat on here. Um, and and I always love, you know, very good um colleague of mine um, Aaron Coots, who you've um, you've had on the show you now coots he talks about thinking fast and slow and and geez, it's a great analogy for the the coach versus the scientist um, but I think that the best ones I've seen in each each field um, if they are separate have have some characteristics of the other you know they're, they're a bit more hybrid rather than um, you know, off in one category or the other. And, and I've been influenced in that thinking from a very early stage by my time at the AIS. You know, I was working with guys like who were in physiology at the time, you know, absolute, um, you know, world leaders of, you know, Louise Burke, a dietitian who people would know of, um, David Martin, David Pine, um, you know, people like that who are who just world-renowned sports scientists. But for them, it was all about well, what's the practical implication of the work um, that, that they were doing. So, you know, I guess a long way of saying integration is everything. It's, if they're separate, I think we've got a massive problem.
0: Yeah, and we spoke about Jason Webber, who came on the, the podcast yeah. a couple of weeks ago. And he, to me, he epitomised it. Like, yeah. you look at look at him and you go, pure strength coach. I, that's just maybe the perception that you have people may have him. You actually speak to him and he's learning code. He's, he's got this huge scientific underpinning that just sits just hits him bang in the middle. I know his trade is as a strength coach, a strength and conditioning coach, but yeah, huge influence from the what may be classed as the, the sports scientist.
1: Oh, c- completely. And, you know, in my experience, you know, people like Jason and, and many others. Um, around the place that are you know the best at what they do sit right in the middle there and, and they and they they take a scientific approach but then there's other times where they say you know what well, this is an art of coaching decision away I go and you know that's that's an expert coach or expert sports scientist so I fear for the um, you know the people who understandably have have um spent the last few years behind a desk just downloading GPS units and and coding up a report, I I, I worry about where those people are going to go if they haven't, you know, got their hands dirty at the coaching coalface. So, you know, hopefully hopefully they get the opportunity to do that, um, you know, before, um, you know, those roles are, are sort of... Absorbed into into
0: other people's roles. Yeah. So with with all that said, how do you then f- not filter, but f- I suppose funnel people with your high performance online qualification based on what yeah. we just discussed? Do you do you push people down the more generalist route of, of like you say, sit in the middle? I guess that's maybe why you've called it high performance rather than a sports Correct. science or training condition. Okay. So you you, you yeah. Okay. So you've gone. You try to hit both aspects.
1: Oh, look, absolutely, and and you you've um you hit the nail on the head for us. That that was a very deliberate decision to call it a master of high performance sport because um it it's about the the broad range of things that are important um to to be um successful in that environment, and that includes, for example, uh, a unit on leadership and culture. So, you know, those things um, that, you know, we often get hear them referred to as soft skills, absolutely, absolutely critical. And, you know, we from time to time get get people um, external to our program who, who will say, oh, well, you know, what's the point of students doing that? They need to go out and get uh, coaching experience. And We couldn't agree more. Of course they do. But... But our view would be, well, you need to develop those skill sets, you know, equally, either in parallel or one might be go, go before the other or, you know, like me, I, I, I'd i been coaching for a long, long time before I decided to go and do a PhD. Um, but ultimately, over time, you develop multiple skill sets and and you, you hopefully be, become a bit more of a complete package. So. In our program, yes, we're, we're teaching people um, some underlying, um, you know, theoretical components, but it's always with the view to, okay, well, how do you apply this? You know, what's the importance of the context of your environment and encouraging them to, you know, we have, a, we have an internship unit, for example. So, right, go out and get your hands dirty as much as you can so that you can, you can learn for yourself how to apply um you know these concepts that you're learning
0: about yeah i listened to jason's episode again the other night and i was picking out little bits to put on social media and stuff and one bit that i picked out was him saying if you if you're a developing coach just coach anyone don't care <laughs> who it is kids old guys middle-aged women Doesn't matter, just get your hands on someone and just have that experience of dealing with them, you know, dealing just generally dealing with people, their expectations, obviously the programming side as well. Just get as much experience as possible with anyone.
1: Uh, Look, I couldn't agree more. And and it's really fascinating because um, you talk to a lot of um, up-and-coming young S&Cs or, again, sports scientists, however you want to refer to them, and they've got their heart set on working in a particular league, in a particular sport. And that's a wonderful aspiration. But I would say that, you know, almost um, to a person, the ones who end up being more successful in those environments have been in multiple environments that are quite different prior to that, you know, big gig that they really have coveted for a long time. And I know for a fact that my time at the Australian Institute of Sport where I was a developing coach and I worked with you know the men's and women's olympic soccer team I worked with the men's water polo team I worked with rowing I worked with judo I helped other snc coaches with men's and women's volleyball basketball netball I mean I learned so much that I could then take and apply to the single sport environment that you know, I think Jason's points spot on that, that breadth of coaching experience um, is absolutely critical. you know but alongside that breadth of coaching experience in my mind anyway that's that's just as important is you know understand the underlying you know physiology, biomechanics, the, the mechanisms that drive adaptation and performance. So then, you can really marry that with your coaching skills, and to me, then you've got a real high quality practitioner.
0: Mm-hmm. So let's dive back into the the science and your, I suppose your your experience in this area and the load yeah. fatigue relationship. I suppose it yeah. goes back into the mechanistic stuff. Just, to go, just just to go back, actually, I don't apologise for bringing that up about the coaching because it has come up quite a bit, and people who listen regularly may. May think, oh, he's always going about this, but I do think it has to be emphasised that any coaching, especially if they're developing coach, is good. But anyway, I'll oh, do that. Complete,
1: uh, c- completely. I mean, yeah. you're right. To, you're right to completely bring it up all the time because because it's actually a thing, and it's yes. <laughs> yeah. it, it, it's it, it, it's what you know. Sadly, I'm at that point now where I'm the i the old guy who says back in my day. <laughs> <laughs> but but stuff's changed, you know, and. And and what we would say is that hey, let, let's not forget this other stuff because it's it's about the the totality of the skill set that you can bring to the program.
0: Mm-hmm. So yeah, little run, little run over for both of us No, I'm, you, I'm, on, <laughs> I'm on your side. But um, yeah, low fatigue relationship and yeah. gives give a bit of an overview of your work in this area. Then we'll dive a little bit deeper again.
1: Yeah. Um, well, look, it, it was. it's really funny how the, the planets line up and you know, I've been really fortunate. Uh, I think they've lined up a few times. And when I was at the AIS, one of the squads I was working with was the Matildas, which is the Australian uh, women's soccer team and we were preparing for the Sydney Olympic Games. So it was a great role. Um, fantastic head coach at the time, a guy called Chris Tansey who actually played for Liverpool um, okay. uh, many years ago. And Chris was incredibly supportive of my role in the program. And at that time I was uh, uh, completing my Masters um, through the University of of Canberra and I was examining the strength and power of those athletes in that squad um, at sort of three time points in the 12-month lead-up to the Olympics. And the first two testing occasions had just gone beautifully. And then wouldn't you know it about... Three days prior to the third testing occasion, um, Chris, which was very unlike him, is that enough? They're <laughs> not doing. They're not doing what he wants, and he smashed them. He absolutely flogged them. Now, I'm not saying they didn't deserve it, but that's what happened. So I've said, ah, you beauty, I'm just about to do lower body strength (laughs) and power profile on these girls. What's going to happen? Anyway, I went through with the testing, not knowing what I was going to get. You got what you got. And as I was analysing my data, I thought, jeez, some of these lower body um, explosive qualities are really suppressed. Of course, it wasn't too hard to link the previous training to that outcome. So that kind of ignited in me this idea of hmm, the response to a given load and how you might assess it. So, yeah, moved from the AOS, and then after I'd been at West Coast for sort of um, four or five years, I, I spoke to Michael Wiggin and Rob Newton about a PhD and, and we explored those ideas in, um, in the Australian Footy League. So, Chris,
0: did you a favour there? by smashing them.
1: Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I owe in my whole career, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but again, that's where I say the planets line up. You know, if that doesn't happen, maybe I don't, um, you know, have the light bulb and put two and two together. Um, so, yeah, been, been really fortunate at the time that, that those kind of things just uh,
0: came along. So let's dive a little bit deeper into that area a bit a bit more and yeah. individual individual differences and in terms of how one person maybe uh react to a certain amount of load and, and how that response is 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 showing the fatigue just dive a little bit deep into that if, if we can
1: yeah well i guess uh, ultimately we're, we're interested in the individual response aren't we mm. and it's all about the individual response to a given load rather than you know, the given load itself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what what we've sort of been able to establish is that um, really it's that individual, um, you know, perception um, or, you know, um, objective assessment of the experience load that's important. So it's the response to that load um, rather than the load itself. And, and I think a really interesting thing that's that's starting to, to come out now, and um, uh, Rich Johnson, uh, who's at uh, ACU, you know, Rich, yeah, um, fantastic operator, and um, uh, Paul Tafari, also at ACU, who's recently um, finished his PhD. I was lucky enough to work with him um, as a supervisor, and, you know, both those guys have have done some work, which is showing pretty clearly that, you know, that fatigue response to a given load can be mediated by physical capacity, e.g., if you're fitter and stronger, you tolerate that external load, um, you know, much better. Uh, so your individual response to that is is less negative than those athletes that aren't as well conditioned. So
0: yeah, it's all about the individual response. So, so in terms of measuring that fatigue in the, in the applied world, what what options have we got? Yeah,
1: well, it's an area that I'm I'm super interested in, and, and I guess you can. You can really classify it into two broad approaches. Um, You can look at it objectively um, or subjectively. Um, What's really interesting to me is that, you know, I think we often view the subjective approach as perhaps the the poor cousin of the objective measure, but uh, the more you investigate, the, the more I think you can easily justify it's in fact the gold standard. Uh, There's a really nice paper um, in MedSci from 2016, um, Anoka and Dushitu, and they talk about uh, translating, uh, I think, actually I've got it, Translating Fatigue to Human Performance is the title of the the paper. And they make the case that um, really, you know, fatigue as a symptom, if you want to call it that, um, represents either as a state or a trait, you know, so something that's that's more transient, or something that might exist, um, you know, more completely, and they they make the the really good argument that you can actually only measure that by definition through self-report. So so that to me is a really strong argument for the use of the subjective assessment of fatigue and. So, therefore, the use of uh, the validated questionnaires, DALDA, Rescue Sport, et cetera, um, really come into play. Um, Also, the the more common wellness questionnaires that we all use and and are adapted, but I'll put a little rider on that because of even though practically use it all the time, we've done plenty of work, which to me suggests some real ecological validity for that approach. You know, there's some question about um, whether the scales and the uh, and the wording, etc., uh, really meet the the level of rigor that um, those other types of more validated psychometric scales uh, have. So, yeah, with a with a slight word of caution, but from a usability perspective, um, really valuable. If we think about the objective side, I suppose that's where I really developed my interest with um, using a counter-movement jump as a representation of neuromuscular fatigue. Um, And I sort of went about it backwards. Instead of starting in the lab, measuring that underlying um, really um, clear um, neuromuscular fatigue that we could identify the source of, sort of went the other way. And so through that process we were discussing earlier, decided that through some fairly, you know, I'd like to think rigorous analysis that one variable, that being the ratio of flight time to contraction time, was the most sensitive and useful variable in AFL football. I've got to point out I've never suggested that that automatically then applies in other environments because I think you've got to do that work. But funnily enough, we've certainly shown it in A-lead soccer and I know other people have been using that metric or similar ones. I think the message is that it tends to be those variables that reflect a change in strategy rather than simply an output. So the athlete will find a way, in inverted commas, to achieve a certain output. And so by measuring the strategy, you you can see what's changed in order to achieve that given output. And, And that might be reflective of neuromuscular fatigue. Obviously, in the field, that works. Now, it's not the gold standard because that's in the lab with a dynamometer and it's uh, an isometric contraction and a superimposed um, magnetic or electric stimula- electrical stimulation over the top of that voluntary contraction to, to look at um, aspects of central and peripheral fatigue. Of course that doesn't work but as I said, the, the thing that we've done with Paul Tafari's work is actually go back into the lab and assess the impact of um, team sport performance on that gold standard way of measuring neuromuscular fatigue. Um, so it, it's interesting to go back and really understand the mechanism. The, the, the comment that I would like to make about measuring fatigue in um, high-performance sport is I think you've got to consider it in uh, from two ends. For the measure to be valid, and this is just my musings here, it, it has to – Uh, respond in a particular way to a given load. And there should be a dose-response relationship. So if you do more of X, then the variable should respond accordingly. But the other thing which I reckon is probably even more important is that if I have a variable that responds to a previous load, and let's say it's suppressed, but then I undertake my next performance and this variable still suppressed but it has no impact on my subsequent performance, I probably actually don't care that it's suppressed because it kind of happens but it's, it's not really impacting anything. So I think one of the real steps in the, the ecological validation of these measures of fatigue is that if they're suppressed or elevated or whatever direction for that variable, it's got to show up in something like the activity profile of the subsequent event. or to me, it's a bit questionable about, well, it changed, but zero influence. Mm -hmm. So so for me, you know, in practice, number one, get the subjective assessment of fatigue. And if you're going down the objective line, I think you've got to be really clear of the impact of load on that variable to, to demonstrate which one's most sensitive. And then critically, okay, well, does that suppression or whatever variation impact subsequent performance in order to tick the boxes from both ends of the equation? And, you know, then if you've got a combination of object given subjective measures, I think you, you've got a reasonable system.
0: Mm-hmm. So one thing I'll just ask you just before I let you go is about um, submax runs that are getting yeah. reasonably popular out there in the field. Yeah. Um, is, that, is that something that I know you've done, you know, students have done work in this area, is that something that you're seeing a big rise in for this this reason? Yeah,
1: exactly right, Rob. I, I think um, it's really attractive to people because they're able to perhaps utilise a protocol that they were going to do anyway that fits in within a, uh, a standard small-sided game that's done regularly or perhaps part of a warm-up. And I guess really the start of this uh, type of approach was using um, heart rate recovery and heart rate variability from, from submax um, tests. And there's now um, multiple groups have uh, examined this type of thing, looking at everything from heart rate through to changes in accelerometer um, metrics. And the work we did with Amber Rao was using a small-sided game and um, having a look at the change in accelerometer load and how that lined up with what we found with um, fatigue as identified through flight time to contraction time ratio in the counter movement jump. And it's fascinating to me that we found pretty much the same thing as we found in AFL footy, and that is a reduction in the vertical vector of the accelerometer when you're in a fatigued state. And that may well represent um, a reduction in stiffness. Mechanistically, that makes sense. That's what it might be, but we've yet to quantify that. Although we're we're heading down that path at the moment to so look at that in some more detail. But I think um, standardised protocols that are within the um, program um, mean that that people might be a little more likely um, to buy into performing them. But they're not without their
0: limitations. Mm-hmm. Back to invisible monitoring. Phrase. Yeah, so invisible. In there anyway.
1: yeah. yeah, that's right. I guess the one thing that's a, a slight challenge potentially with them is if you perform uh, some sort of fatigue monitoring protocol and it's well prior to training, let's say in the hour um, before the players get out onto the, the training ground, you might be able to have some intervention or um, talk to the coach about some change in the plan for an individual athlete. But if you're doing a standardised protocol, let's say it's part of a warm-up, it's really invisible and it's not invasive, but you might be left with the challenge of a really late decision having to be made about the status of an athlete. Now, that might be fine. Everything's a trade-off, isn't it? Um, And some coaches might cope really well with that. I've known one or two who perhaps wouldn't wouldn't deal with a late-notice quite so well.
0: Yeah. Amazing. Well... I know I've, uh, I've, I've kept you for an hour now. So anyone that wants to catch up with you on any of this and anything else for that matter, where's the best place for people to, to catch up?
1: Yeah, uh, no, look, it's been great to chat to you. Um, my Twitter handle's at Stu Cormack. Um, uh, so yeah, please uh, just follow and send me a message and I'll, I'll get an alert that someone's um, uh, mentioned me and I'll, I'll follow up, happy to do that. Or my email, uh, easily, you can track me down through ACU, but it's stuart.cormac at acu.edu.au.
0: Superb. Well, thank you very much for your time, Stu. Really appreciate you coming on. And, uh, yeah, apologies for the stalking for, for a while, but really appreciate you coming on and uh, and having a chat.
1: No, oh, no, look, Rob, it's, uh, it's been a pleasure. And, uh, no, I'm really flattered to, uh, to be invited. And hopefully it's of interest to people. Thanks for your time.
0: Thanks, Stu. Pleasure. Good on you, Rob. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pasty Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the chat with Stu. So big thanks to sponsors Hawking Dynamics, iMeasureU, Blackbox Fitness and Kitman Labs for sponsoring this episode today. The podcast could not run in its current form without these guys. So if you are in the market for force plates, inertial sensors, an AMS or uh, gym equipment, definitely check these guys out. Also big thanks to Stu for giving up his time. I know it's a strange time we're all living in now and this was recorded in the midst of that. But super busy guy, obviously taking things online so really appreciate him giving up his time to have a little chat. So thank you for tuning in again. Thank you for your support and I will chat to you next week.